At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. You're listening to the Gospel Community Church Sermons Podcast, where we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse and line by line, to hear the truth that God's Word has to encourage, discipline, and bless us in our daily lives. Amen, amen. We've not met yet. My name is Kurt McDonald. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at the church, and this morning it is my great privilege to bring to you God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he add his blessing to it. Church family, uh, if you have been around uh, Gospel Community Church for longer than five minutes, you know uh, that we love us some theology. Amen? We, we like doctrine. We like theology. Uh, we, we like rich, deep uh, Bible teaching, uh, and we believe at this church that there is true doctrine and there is false doctrine. Amen? So there is orthodoxy, meaning things that are true, things that come from the Bible. Uh, What is true theology, correct practice, that is orthodoxy, and then there's also heresy. That would be incorrect doctrine or false teaching or things that do not come from the Word of God but come from the heart of, of sinful Men. And so the reality is, uh, as we look at, as we think about true teaching and false teaching, we hold on to the true doctrine that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. Amen? This is what the Bible teaches us. The reality is the vast majority of historians know that Jesus was a real man who lived in first century Palestine. Hardly anyone disputes that. But we hold to the truth that he was not just a man that lived in first century Palestine, but that he really was and is God of true God. Listen to what the Apostle Paul has to say in Colossians 1, 16 through 20. He says this, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in all things he are held together. Everything might be head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in him everything might be preeminent. For in him all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross that that should have got 10 or 12 amens on that it it said all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ and so what separates Christianity from all other religions there's actually a whole lot of things so don't don't ever buy into the silly myth that all religions are basically the same they're not anybody who says that has not studied any religion for longer than 2 seconds so what separates Christianity from all other religions is there's several tenets but one of the main tenets is that we believe that Jesus is fully God Jehovah's Witnesses and and Mormons do not believe that. What what they teach is that Jesus is the first created being of the Father, therefore not equal with the Father. Uh, uh, What about Islam or Judaism? They don't believe Jesus is God. They believe he was simply a prophet. But as Christians, we declare the full deity of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Well, what would you say if I told you that as we embark on this Uh, theological battle to proclaim loudly that Jesus is fully God, that that was not the main argument in the first century church. They they were not fighting the battle like we fight. So again, most people would acknowledge that Jesus Christ existed, right? A a first century Galilean peasant, they, they get the whole thing. But they would not acknowledge that he is God. And so here we are, 
as, as Christians, embarking on uh, this mission to proclaim Jesus is fully God, but that's not what was happening in the first century church. As a matter of fact, in the, in the earliest church, they were not defending his divinity. People had no problem believing that Jesus was fully God. The early church spent their time defending Jesus' humanity. The heresy that they were facing was known as docetism, closely related to Gnosticism. Again, I said we like theology here. We use theology words. If you're taking notes, here, here it goes. Docetism comes from the Greek word to seem. So they believed that flesh or our bodies were evil or worldly, and therefore Jesus could not have had a body. This is known as the heresy of docetism. Jesus could not have had a body because our bodies are evil and fleshly. You would ask them, is Jesus God? They would say, oh, certainly, Jesus is divine. And, and you'd say, okay, but he was also a man. And they would say, oh, no, no, he could not have been a man, right? He, he could not have had a body because that's evil. So then the argument would be something like this. But his disciples saw a body. His disciples touched a physical body. His disciples and the people saw him eat food. He had a physical body. And the docetists would say, oh, no, no, it just seemed like he did. He didn't have a real body. It seemed like he did. And so this was the heresy in the first century church as, the, as Christianity is beginning to Virgin. Now listen to uh, the Apostle John in 1 John 4, 1 through 3. He's going to, again, try to attack this heresy that was happening in the church. Listen to what he has to say. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. I wish I had some time to preach on that. I don't. Beloved, do not believe. Okay, I will for a second. This is why I encourage you as we're preaching, as, as I'm going through Bible text, for you to have the Bible text in front of you. Because it's the congregation's job to hold the preacher accountable to make sure he's saying what the text says and not something else. So, that's all I'm going to say about that. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you will know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses, listen to this, that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This, this is what John, John is battling this heresy in the church. They were teaching that, that Jesus did not come in the flesh. And he's saying, no, no, if, if this person is really speaking from God, they will acknowledge that Jesus has come in the flesh. And every spirit does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. And so if you're taking notes, here is what is important for us Christians who are desperate to defend the deity of Christ from the text of Scripture— for us who want to defend the deity of Christ, it's important for us to know this. In our effort to stress the deity of Christ, we must never overlook the humanity of Christ. So as, as, as we're in this, no, we believe Jesus is God. Great. But don't dehumanize the humanity of Christ by overemphasizing his divinity. So let's do a little theology this morning. Can we church family? So Jesus took on full human nature without sin and without ceasing to be God. The incarnation teaches us that Jesus is one person with two distinct natures. He is 100% human and 100% divine. He was and is God. He stepped into time and human history and became a man. So now he is the God-man and he will now forever exist as the God-man in heaven. This is what the Apostle John says in John 1, 14. It says, and the word became flesh. 
What word? Well, that's in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And here he says that that word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. What this means, church family, is that Jesus had a human body. He he got hungry. Like he legitimately got hungry. Do you remember when he's being tempted by the devil in the wilderness for 40 days? And we're going to get to that text in Luke, and we'll see that it says that that he was hungry. If he wasn't actually hungry, then it wouldn't have been a temptation from the devil when he tells him to turn the stones into bread. But that's why it is tempting, because he was actually hungry. Or how about this? Uh, Jesus got tired, like physically tired. He, He gets done preaching to the crowds, and gets on the boat. And what does he do on the boat? He goes to sleep. Why does he go to sleep? Because he's tired. Because this is physically exhausting, church family. I do it every week. I go home and I go to sleep because it's tiring. Not only that, but he got thirsty. As he, as he hung on the cross after a brutal beating and being crucified, he, he's, he's parched, he's dehydrated. And he says from the cross, I thirst. And, and all of that pointing to the fact that he has a physical body. He got hungry. He got tired. He got thirsty. In addition, he had human emotions. When, when he hears that Lazarus is dead, he weeps. Not only does he weep, but he gets angry. He's angry at what death has done to his friend. But not only that, he, he tells jokes right? The whole camel through the eye of a needle thing, right? He, he had friends. He told jokes. He, he wept. He got angry. He, he was joyful. He was happy. Why do, you, why do you think all the little kids wanted to be around him? Because he was joyful, right? Jesus Christ was not only fully God, but he was also fully man. Okay, thus far, what we've seen in Luke is these two uh, birth narratives that are running side by side. The birth narrative of John the Baptist and the birth narrative of Jesus. And last week, we concluded those birth narratives, and now we move into a new section of Luke. And what we're going to find, what we're going to discover in this new section, which we're entering into, the 12-year-old boy at the temple, is that it is essentially guarded or gated on either side uh, by these two verses that are pointing us in the same direction. Think, think about them like bookends. There's a bookend here and a bookend here, and the story of Jesus in the temple is in the middle. Y'all with me? Let's, let's look at these bookend verses. Look at verse 40 real quick. It's not going to come on the screen. I just want you to just kind of get the bookends, get the, the beginning and the end of the, of the story here. It, it says this, And the child grew and became strong and filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now let your eyes jump to verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom, and in stature, and in favor with God. It's almost the exact same verse, just in two different places, acting again as the bookends to this amazing story of Jesus in the temple. Luke wants us to see that he is God. Uh, From all the singing, and the shepherds, and the angels, and the prophetic announcements, uh, he's been declared Christ. He's been declared the Messiah. He's been declared the Lord. So, So we know he's divine. But now he wants to point us to the humanity, to the humanity of Christ. He had to grow. He had to increase in wisdom and in stature, which again, it, it boggles our minds to think that Jesus grew in wisdom. 
it's much easier for us to imagine Jesus growing in stature, right? Because we know, you know, we celebrate Christmas. We know he's a little baby. He had to grow up. But grew in wisdom? How is this possible? Well, it's only possible because he is 100% human. Okay, now for our outline before we dive into our text. Are you all ready this morning? Here's our outline. First, the incarnate Christ grows. He grows in verses 39 through 40. Second point in our outline is this. The incarnate Christ with worried parents. What's more human than having a worried mom? Thirdly, the incarnate Christ, human yet amazing. (laughs) He is 100% human, but he's also really amazing. And, And we'll discover why. Fourthly and lastly, the incarnate Christ and his mission, and his mission in verses 48b through 52. Okay, like I said, get the text out in front of you. Let's go through it together. First, the incarnate Christ grows. Look there at verse 39. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee and to their own town, Nazareth. So what we saw was, last week was the, the circumcision and the purification rites and, and the sacrifices and presented in the temple. This is the fifth time in this chapter where Luke has been clear and pointing us to that they've done everything according to the law of the Lord. Fifth time he said that in this chapter. They did they, like 10 out of 10 on stuff you're supposed to do. That's what they got. They, they did everything that they were supposed to do to fulfill all of the law. Look at verse 40, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now, from birth, you have to understand what we saw was the end of the birth narrative, and now we're going to see him, he's 12 years old, and the link between those two things is this one verse. That's all there is. That's all that the Bible tells us about his growing up. And so that's why, uh, that's why there are all those you know, fantastical stories about the lost years of, of Jesus. Well, it, this is all that it tells us. Now, there's very entertaining stories in the lost years of Christ, or uh, there, there's actually apocryphal stories about the boy Jesus. One, uh, one story is that uh, Jesus was making uh, cl- uh, clay pigeons. He was sitting by the, the river making clay pigeons, and he made 12 of them, and he snapped his fingers, and they all came alive. There's another interesting story of the boy Jesus to where he's walking down the street, and somebody bumps into him, and they fall down dead. The best story that I heard, and if you guys know me, you'll know uh, I'm, I'm a kind of a wo- I like woodworking, that sort of thing, grew up doing that sort of thing. One fantastical story that was told about the boy Jesus is uh, he's in the carpenter shop with his dad, and his dad cuts a board too short, and Jesus stretches it. <laughs> but all of those are fantastical stories. Most of those stories actually show up about 100 years after the life and ministry of Christ. They are extra-biblical and not to be trusted. This is what we are told. And the child grew and became strong and was filled with wisdom and favor of God was upon him. Now, here's the point. Luke is making the point here that Jesus' childhood, his, from his infancy to when he was 12 years old, was normal. It was not fantastical. 
As a matter of fact, let me prove that point to you. Jump back over to uh, chapter 1 and look at verse 80 where he's describing John the Baptist. Here's what he says about John the Baptizer. He says this, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the days. Does that sound familiar to you? And the child grew and became strong. Isn't that the exact same thing that he just said about Jesus? The point being that John had a, was a normal kid. John was not the God-man. He had a normal childhood and grew up. And Jesus had a normal childhood and grew up. That, that's it. What, what happened? What went on? Nothing spectacular. <laughs> Nothing to write home about. Listen to what the Apostle Paul has to say in Philippians uh, chapter 2. He says, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Listen to this. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This, like, you would expect Jesus to be born in a palace to have a fantastic, I mean, just impressive, he, he's, uh, you know, levitating and laser beams out of his eyes as a kid. I mean, he's doing all this kind of crazy stuff. No, not at all. He, he took on human flesh and lived a humble life as a first century Galilean peasant carpenter working with his hands. This is the God that we serve. If you're taking notes, by putting on human flesh, Jesus humbled himself so that you might be exalted with him. This is why Jesus puts on human flesh. This is why Jesus comes and it becomes like us in our humble state so that he might die, so that he might be exalted as the first fruits of those who will be exalted. Meaning there is coming a day when Jesus is coming on the clouds. The trumpet will sound. He will call us to be with him. He will be exalted because it says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And we will be lifted up with him to rule and reign with him over his forever kingdom for all eternity. So he puts on human flesh, humbles himself so that we can be exalted with him now, let's look at the incarnate Christ with worried parents, verses 41 through 45. Second point in our outline, the incarnate Christ with worried parents. Again, what describes more of the human experience than having a mama that's worried? Look at verse 41. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. You guys are familiar with the Exodus story and how God's wrath had passed over the, uh, the, the homes of the Israelites who had killed the lamb and put the, the blood on the doorpost and the, the wrath of God passed over their homes and, and the wrath of God fell on the people of Egypt and then they, they were able to leave Egypt out of captivity. They're celebrating this thing that God, that God has done. And... When he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. Now, uh, we know that when a boy in that custom turned 13, he was considered a, a man. Uh, and so Jesus is 12. It seems as they're taking him to the temple during this time so that he can learn Torah and get ready for his bar mitzvah. You guys have heard bar bar. That simply means uh, son of the commandments, bar 
we've heard Simon Bar-Jonah, we, we know this word bar as son of mitzvah then is commandment. And so a bar mitzvah is the, the coming of age of a, of a boy who is now the son of a commandment. And at that age, they could, they could become full-fledged members of their synagogue. And they were required to know their Torah. They, they were required to know the scriptures and, and participate in communal life uh, as, as, a, as a, a church family. That's, that's the age at when, <coughs> when they did that. Verse 43. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. Now, I emphasize that word stayed because it doesn't say left, meaning this is an intentional choice of Jesus to decide to stay in the temple. He knows that they're leaving, that the thing's over. They're, they're leaving. He says, here's from the Father, through the Holy Spirit, Jesus stays in the temple. Now, that doesn't mean that this is an oversight on his, not an oversight on his parents' part. Of, of course, it is. But it's not only an oversight on his parents' part. This is Jesus going about his father's business to go be in his father's house in the temple. Verse 40. And 45. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among the relatives and acquaintances, and they did not find him, and they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Can you imagine the scene? <laughs> Can you imagine Mary's heart dropping? Oh my gosh, I've lost God. It's like you had, you had one job. You, like you, I mean, this is a kind of a big job, keeping up with the God man, but she loses the God man, she, you know, she, she's freaking out uh, about this whole thing. I mean, c- come on, how, how many of us have been left somewhere? Raise your, you just go, you've been left somewhere before. If you're a brave enough parent, you'll raise your hand. You're like, I left my kids somewhere. This is it, you know. <laughs> so grow, they growing up, I grew up with all of my cousins around, right? There, there was like 10, 12 of us. They would, they would pile all of us into the back of a station wagon and take us down to the Walmart. That's, that's you know, I'm just to let you know how I grew up. That's, that's what went on. And, and if, we had, if we had friends from the neighborhood with us, there'd be like 15 kids piled in this, you know, station wagon going down. And look, it was up to us to keep our head on a swivel so that when everybody was going back to the station wagon, you got your tail back to the station wagon. Right there, my, my, my mama and my granny's philosophy was: if you get left, that's on you. <laughs> like you, you should have, you should have got back. So you got to sit up at the Walmart for two hours waiting for them to realize: out of all the kids, you're the one missing. So it's it's not hard for us to wrap our minds around the fact that Jesus is is left in the temple again. He's he's twelve. He's twelve. So from his father's perspective, maybe he's still a boy, a child, and he should be with the women folk, right? His, his mom's got him. But, but maybe the mom's, you know, Mary's perspective is he's, he's almost a man, right? He's almost 13, and so he should be with his father. And so they, they get to the end, and plus they're traveling in large groups for safety. Usually, like, the whole town would gather up together, and they would travel to Jerusalem, and the whole town travels back. Everybody knows everybody. It's, it's not, you know, it's a safe environment. They're just, and at the end of the night, they're, you know, kind of getting ready to camp out so they can head, right? And, and, and I, I thought he was with you. You thought he was with me. I thought he was with you. What? You know, so, so it's not hard to understand why they, why they did that. It's, it's not as if they are terrible parents. But here's the question that I, I kept rolling over in my mind. Jesus stays behind in the temple. 
did Jesus then sin against his parents? <laughs> this is a confusing question, church family. Because if his parents expected him to be with everybody, and this, this was their expectation, is, is Jesus then being disobedient? And is this an instance to where Jesus sinned and, you know, he, he gets it right later on, but, you know, this is his one mistake recorded right here in the Bible for us. Well, of course not, church family. Of course not. He, he's obeying the Father. The, we're going to see a question in just a minute where, where Mary's like, we, where were you? He's like, I'm in my Father's house. So he's not disobeying at all. He, again, put on humanity without ever becoming sinful, if you're taking notes. Though Jesus was fully human, he was without sin. Totally, completely. So he's here in the temple, not disobeying his parents, but obeying his father. He, he was without sin. As a matter of fact, in, in John chapter 8, Jesus is, is standing in front of the crowds. He's being attacked by the, the Jewish leaders. And Jesus makes this incredible statement. He, he challenges the crowd. He challenges the disciples. He challenges the Jewish leaders. He's like, hey, if there's any sin, tell me. Show me church family. I, I can't do that. There are too many of y'all know me in here. But Jesus could because though he put on human flesh, he was without, without sin. Third point in our outline, the incarnate Christ, human yet amazing. Verses 46 through 48a. It says this, after three days, they found him in the temple sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. So here it says, after three days, the commentators go back, on, back and forth on this timeline, but it seems most likely that the first day was the journey back towards home. They realize Jesus isn't here. A day back, they, they get back to Jerusalem. It's night. They you know, they don't want to be banging on people's doors in the middle of the night. They, they wake up in the morning and go to the temple, and, and there he is. That, that's your, your three days. So they found him sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. Do, do you see what's happening? Why is Jesus listening and asking questions? Is he just pretending? <laughs> is he pretending to not know the answers? Well, of course not. Don't you see? This is the humanity of Christ put on display for us. He is learning. That's why he's asking them questions, because he's, he's learning. Jesus had to learn. This is what is so astonishing. Jesus had to grow. Jesus went through all of the stages. Of, he had to learn to crawl. He had to learn to walk. Mary sat down in the floor with him and taught him to count on his little tiny fingers. He had to learn his shapes and, and his colors and the Hebrew alphabet and, and all of that. He, he had to learn these things. And so here he is as a boy, and, and he's sitting asking questions of, of these, these teachers, and he's learning because he was a human. Again, he is not a grown man disguised as a 12-year-old boy. He didn't already know all of the answers. Jesus is learning. He is like us, church family. And yet, and yet he's amazing. Did you see that part in the text? He is also unlike us because of his connection to the Father, which is why his answers are amazing. 
which is why they're astonished at his answers. Where's he getting these answers from? Because of his connection to the Father and, and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Do you remember when Philip is, is talking with Jesus? And, and he, he said, if you would just show us the Father, then we would believe you. And he says, Philip, don't you get it? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Talking about this incredible connection between Jesus and the Father, which is why his answers are so incredible. In their culture, teachers and rabbis would have multiple students who would sit at their feet and learn from them. But Jesus is not sitting with the students and learning. Where is he? He's sitting with the teachers, and they're having this natural spiritual dialogue to where the teachers are answering Jesus' questions, but then the teachers are also posing questions to Jesus, and Jesus is answering their questions, and his wisdom is astonishing. It's amazing. So is he like us? Absolutely. Absolutely. And he is also amazing. He is like us, but listen to this. He is, Jesus is human par excellence, right? Jesus is the supreme example of what humanity should be. He is preeminent human. He is quintessential man. Listen to the way Tim Keller says it. Tim Keller, pastor and theologian. He says this, Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Or Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave the comfort of his uh, familiar home and go out into the void. Jesus is the true and better David whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. He, he is the true and better and greater man. All of these archetypes, all of these pictures of people that we see in the Old Testament, whether it be Adam or Abraham or Moses or, you know, all, all of the, David, all of these people, Jesus is the, the then truer and better ultimate preeminent quintessential man. That's who our, our Christ is, if you're taking notes. Jesus then put on human flesh so that he could become our great example for, for us to look to Christ, to follow Christ, to want to be like Christ. And so, church family, how did Jesus accomplish becoming the quintessential man or the preeminent man? How did, how did he then do that? He does that. He becomes human par excellence. He becomes the supreme example of what it means to be a human by his dependence on the Father and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And so as we are called to be like Christ, which sounds like an impossible command for us to do, anybody else just feel crushed by that? Be like Christ. Well, impossible. You know, he's perfect. I'm not story over. But we become like Christ by doing what Christ did. And what did Christ do? Well, he depended on his Father and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And so as we are commanded to be like Christ, we do that by the same way, by depending on the Father and depending on the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Are you all with me this morning? Okay. Fourthly. The incarnate Christ and his mission, 48b through 52. The incarnate Christ and his mission. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Now, 
I'm just going to keep pushing this point. I want to continue to stress it. If Jesus could levitate at will, had superhuman strength, could read everyone's mind, could shoot laser beams from his eyes, would his mother Mary have been worried about him? No. Oh, he's superhuman Jesus. We left him in Jerusalem. No big deal. He'll be fine. But because he was a normal 12-year-old boy, a special 12-year-old boy who was totally dependent on the father, special, absolutely amazing, but normal, she's worried about her son. She's worried about him. Here we see in verse 49, recorded the very first words of Christ. If we had the time, we would go all the way uh, to chapter 24, verses 49, and we'd see the last words of Christ. But what is so interesting is that his first words and his last words are about his heavenly father. Look at what he has to say. And when she said to them, why were you looking for me? <laughs> what an interesting question. Jesus, we're, we've been freaking out. We were stressed out about where you were. And he goes, why were you looking for me? Answer, because you were not where you're supposed to be. That's Mary's answer, right? That's why we, you were supposed to be with the crowd of people that were traveling back home. You weren't, that's why we were looking for you. You weren't where you're supposed to be, which is where Mary is absolutely wrong. He was where he was supposed to be. Look at what he goes on to say. These two questions, these two striking questions. Where were you? We were looking everywhere for you. And he says, why were you looking for me? Next, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Again, if you're, if you're reading your ESV, your elect standard version, amen? If you're reading that, you'll see. <laughs> that, that was for you, man. Um, You'll, you'll see that there's a footnote there, and if you'll follow that footnote, it will take you down, and you'll see that not only is, is this translated, I was in my father's house, but it also says, I must be about my father's business. I'm, I'm doing what God told me to do. I am on a mission from God. God the Father has sent me to do this thing. So this is the incarnate Christ on his mission from God, if you're taking notes, Jesus puts on human flesh to complete the mission his father had sent him on. Don't, th this is not in the text. I, I'm, I'm totally speculating on this thing. What do you think that he was talking with the leaders about? What questions and answers were going on? Well, it's after the Passover. You think he's asking questions about the Passover lamb? You think he's asking questions about how the lamb was slain? You think he's asking questions about how the blood protected God's people? Do you think he's growing in his understanding of what his mission is to be the lamb that is slain? So he puts on human flesh to, to fulfill the mission of God. That mission, what mission? Well, the mission to redeem God's people. In eternity past, the Father knew that his people would stray, so he sent his Son on the greatest rescue mission of all time, and the Holy Spirit said to Jesus, I'm going with you to empower you, and that's exactly what happened. In eternity past, God the Father ordained that he would redeem his people through the shedding of his son's blood. Jesus comes under the authority of the Father, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and lives the life that we could not live, dies the death that we should have died in our place for our sins, and to do all of that, he had to put on human flesh. Our last two verses. And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. 
And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. I, I scratched my head over this. And they did not understand the saying. Why, why didn't they understand? Why didn't they go, oh, yeah, makes sense. When he says, don't you know that I, I'm about my father's business? I need to be in my father's house. Don't, don't you know who I am? Did Mary forget about the Immaculate Conception? What, what about, we just read all this stuff in Luke about, I mean, they called him Messiah and Lord and Savior and, and Zachariah singing a song and Simeon singing and everybody's singing and there's, there's angels. Why didn't they understand? Because they had just spent the last 12 years with a normal boy. That's why they didn't understand, because he truly put on humanity. Again, he was not a grown man disguised as a 12-year-old boy. This is why they didn't get it. They just spent the last 12 years with a normal boy, a special boy, but normal. What we see here is that Jesus goes back to his home and lives out the rest of his childhood in submission to them. There he is. He is seen as the Lord calling. Um, <clears throat> there he is. He, he submits himself to them as a submissive son. I mean, can you imagine having Jesus as a son? I, uh, <laughs> I was wondering this week, you know, did Mary ever turn and say to the other kids, you know, why can't you be more like Jesus, you know? <laughs> and, and so there, there we see in verse 51 that he is he's submissive to them. Look at verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. What is so interesting, if you look at the arc of this text, in verse 16, Jesus is referred to as a baby. In verse 40, he is referred to as a child. In verse 43, he is referred to as a boy. And finally, in verse 52, he's just called Jesus. Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And that's all that we know from when Jesus was 12 to when he begins his public ministry at the age 30. Again, tons of speculation. Where did he go? What did he do? What happened? Well, again, it was probably very unspectacular. That's why it's not recorded. What happened in those years from 12 to 30? Uh, he went to work. He provided for his family. He studied his Bible. He spent time with his friends. That's what he did. That's what he did. But he grew. He had to grow in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Well, that's our text, church family. And what I usually do is I, as I give you the big idea of the sermon at the beginning, but I saved it for the end. Here it is. The one main point, the big idea, and then I have three sub points under that. Here it is. Without Jesus' humanity, we do not have a Savior. If he's only divine, we have no Savior. He must be fully human and fully divine. Without his humanity, we have no Savior at all. First sub-point is this. The Word became flesh so that God could fulfill his promise to save his people and dwell with them. You ever th How can eternal God dwell with us. How, how is that going to work? You ever try to wrap your mind around that? 
Well, he can't fulfill that promise. He can't testament for God to dwell with us unless he puts on human flesh so that he can dwell with us. This is why he says, don't you know when I go away, I go to my father's house, I go to prepare a place for you. For in my father's house, it, so some people think we all get mansions. Many rooms, that's fine, you can believe that if you want. But what the text really says is in my father's house, there are many rooms. So it's not this individualized, uh, you know, sectarian, like you get to go and do your own thing and le- be in your own heaven and all, whatever. No, we are going to be a part of the family of God, living with him forever, dwelling with him. And the only way we can dwell with him is by him putting on human flesh. Second subpoint is this. <clears throat> the word became flesh so that he could be our mediator. All throughout the Old Testament, you see prophets. And, and, and these prophets are trying to serve as, as the mediator between God and man. But they're, fa- they're failed. They're, they're, they're flawed. They, they can't. And, and then there's the priests. They're, they're, trying, they're kind of dropping the I mean, there's tons of <laughs> passages in the Old Testament that show priests. Uh, and they, they're kind of dropping the ball in, in several areas. And, and, but what about the kings, right? The kings then come in to lead the nation and be the mediator between God and man. Well, how did that go? Not too well. And so what we needed was somebody who is able to place their hand on the shoulder of a holy God. Who can do that, church family? Certainly not us. But we also need somebody who can reach out and place their hand on the shoulder of of humanity. Somebody who can touch humanity and also touch God and be the the mediator between the two. And Jesus had to put on flesh so that he could accomplish that task. Thirdly and lastly, the word became flesh so that he could suffer and die. What this means is without a human body, there could be no real crucifixion. This is the flaw of docetism. Don't you know that those were real hands that the nails went through? Those were real feet. He felt the pain when they placed the crown of thorns on his head. He really bled. He really felt the excruciating pain. He really died. Don't you see? And without him putting on human flesh, none of those things would be possible. Without humanity, we have no Savior at all. Brothers and sisters, church family, do not sterilize or dehumanize the humanity of Jesus. Instead, run to him because he understands your fleshly temptations. Because he put on flesh, he knows. He gets it. He understands. This is why Hebrews 4.15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who in every respect, every respect has been tempted just as we are, yet without sin. He understands why you sin. Is that sinking in to anybody else? Am I the only one in the room that feels like when, sometimes when, when I sin, when I know that I've done something wrong, Jesus is in heaven going, what are you thinking? I mean, I taught you better than that. Come on, Kirk, get it together. No, no, that's not as hard at all. Because he has been tempted in every way, yet he didn't sin. When I fall into sin, he understands. Not as if Jesus is winking at my sin or is okay with it or is going to sweep it under the rug. But he says to me, and he says to us, he says to all of us fellow sinners, he says, I understand why you sin. I get it. I, I've been tempted that way. Now let me help you walk out of it. This is our Savior. This is the Christ who has put on humanity, who humbled himself to be like us so that we might be exalted 
with him. Church family, run to the Savior who has put on human flesh, who has humbled himself so that we might be exalted with him. Let's pray together. Oh God, we praise the God of the heaven who spoke the universe into existence, who created all things and through whom all things are held together, that mighty God, we praise you because you have put on flesh, you left the comfort of the heavenly father to step out of heaven and come and step into humanity and time and put on human flesh and experience our temptations and experience our weakness. Lord, you have done this so that you could identify with us and show us the way and so that you could die in our place for your sin. And so this morning I pray hearts would not shrink back from you, but hearts would run to you this morning knowing that you get it. You understand our temptation. And God, we praise you for your bodily death on the cross so that we might be exalted with you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day.